Welcome to the Triage Method Podcast with me, Guy McGowan, and as always, my co-host, Mr. Patrick Farrell. Patty, how are you? Absolutely splendid, Gary. Wonderful. Are you splendid or are you still sick? I wouldn't say splendid, still still sick, chest infection kind of situation of sorts, but uh, on the other side of it now, hopefully, on the mend. Fantastic. And what are we talking about today, Gary? Today we're talking about uh, exercise oncology, or very simply, the role that exercise can play in the prevention and management and follow-on um, of cancer. And this is obviously a, a huge topic in the sense that cancer fundamentally as a disease or a very large cluster of diseases with common features can occur pretty much at any point in the lifespan but is most strongly related to aging and therefore anytime we're talking about a disease that relates to aging it's very hard not to talk about exercise of course but it's also a very messy discussion in that everything we recommend exercise for in this medical series are very much related. So it's not just that these exercise recommendations are specific to cancer. It's that it's going to improve your health in every way leading up to the point that you might get cancer and that the health status that emerges from that exercise potentially prevents the cancer and puts you in a better position to deal with it if it does occur. So it's a very messy conversation i would say but we're going to hopefully tie it up quite neatly i think yeah and before we get into it i suppose we should go in with the caveat that and i think you also believe this but i know i i believe this <laughs> cancer is one of those ones where you can just do everything right and still get the short straw 100 you know? yeah. there's genetic components there's lifestyle components there's just fucking random events components you know so we're not going into this with the thing going like oh, uh, just do some exercise and you'll prevent all cancers occurring. Or if you have cancer, just start exercising and you'll be magically healed. Like, I don't think either of us harbor those thoughts. You know, I know some people in the health and fitness community think that exercise is an absolute panacea, magical pill. It'll cure, it'll prevent, it'll do everything. I don't think we have that thought process. Like, yeah, we think it's a pretty powerful intervention it does quite a lot almost like a panacea but i'm not going to sit here and I, I don't think again you're going to sit here and say oh that person that got cancer over there if only they exercised if they had exercised they wouldn't have got that you know like i don't think that's fair to say not just in terms of like a an ethical moral fairness but in terms of i don't think with the evidence that we have we could say that, oh, if you had just done a couple of extra cardio or resistance training sessions per week, you would never have gotten that cancer. Like, I don't think that's what the research would suggest, you know. Um, so that's a little caveat going into this. Um, but where do we start with this, Gary? I, I presume we're going to start with a little bit of a, a definition of what cancer is, because that kind of sets the tone, sets the stage. Yes, it's really important to understand at least some of the basics as to what cancer is. And the first point is that cancer is not a single disease. And this is actually a really important point that is very often missed, even in day-to-day -day discussions in the general public. Because I'm sure at some point in time, you've heard people use the phrase like finding a cure for cancer or 
conspiracy theorist minded people might say they're hiding the cure for cancer, you know, and fundamentally there's a, a misunderstanding there that cancer is a single disease or it has one single root cause. And this, unfortunately, it's on top of that, or there is one single like common pathway yeah. to all cancers, because that also comes into like treatments and different things. Like you'll see people say stuff like the keto diet for cancer. Mm. And that's not, you know, that's not going to be applicable in all cancers. Exactly. And cancer. So cancer is, is encompasses as a broad term, many, many, many different diseases that share some common features, but do diverge quite a bit between then different types of cancers in terms of their location, in terms of their severity, etc. And some of the, the most common kind of central theme really would be uncontrolled cell growth is what people will typically say. And that includes things like the loss of the normal mechanisms within your cells that control the pr proliferation and differentiation. So, you know, you've got this normal cell cycle that's ongoing, that's going to break down damaged cells, you know, get rid of them and build new healthy cells, reproduce them. And that normally functions in a a normal, well-regulated manner that keeps us healthy throughout the lifespan. In the case of cancer, that basically becomes uncontrolled. And it's a bit like if you've got a conveyor belt in a factory and that you're on the, you're on the assembly line and everyone can do their own job at a given rate, and suddenly that conveyor belt begins to speed up or one person's gone to the bathroom and you can't turn the belt off. Now people aren't able to do their jobs right. Things are being misassembled. Things are falling off the side. It just becomes far more chaotic. So normally in a normal biological cell replication, we've got somewhat of uh, order taking place. It's not fully ordered, but it's ordered enough that we maintain our health mostly throughout the lifespan. In the case of cancer, it becomes chaotic, dysregulated, and very, very disorganized. And that is like what that's that's easy to understand in the case of something like a, a solid tumor, let's say. You know, when you hear of people that have tumors from cancer, it, that that story kind of makes sense because it's like, all right, so we started with some sort of normal cell replication, then it went out of control, and then we had this tumor. And because everything's really dysregulated in terms of how those cells are structured, the structure of blood vessels, the ability of those cells to recycle or to resist cell death and these types of things, they're no longer susceptible to the same uh, immune mechanisms, for example, that would get rid of these uh, areas of damage in the, in the case of normal health and also for medication. Yeah, you ahead. think of like the immune system, like using your conveyor belt analogy, where, yeah. like, where there's someone... They're gone to the toilet, like you said, they're whatever. There's, there's a backup. The immune system comes in, a normal functioning immune system, a normal system. The immune system comes in and goes, oh, look, we have all this backlog of all these different things. I'll deal with that. I'll clean up the factory, mm -hmm. so to speak. I'll do some regulatory checks to make sure things have been assembled correctly. Oh, these ones haven't. We'll throw them out, you know? So we can think of that as well with cancer, where it's not just a case of, the assembly line itself, like the cells themselves being you know, something wrong, some sort of cancer there, but there could also be stuff that is impacting the immune system or the regulatory system, the cell check system, if you will. So again, it's not just a homogenous, oh, if you get a, you know, a, a mutation here, 
it's going to cause all these issues. You know, that could be effectively dealt with by your immune system, by other cells, by the body as a whole. So it is more multifactorial than just thinking of, like you're saying here, like, oh, it's just a uncontrolled cell growth. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So it's a, it's a, it's a very uh, messy situation and that's why it's very difficult to treat cancer or different types of cancers um, because often, you know, there might be intuitive mechanisms like, oh, well, if, if this protein is defective, then let's give a medication that acts on that protein to fix it or to turn it off or whatever. But because cancer has this dysregulated environment, it finds ways to escape the action of those drugs. It's, it's, it's incredibly smart. Um, and this again, varies between every single type of cancer. So the summary there is that cancer is not a single disease. It's many different types of diseases. It shares the common trait of having this uncontrolled cell growth, but also this chaotic, unregulated environment as a whole. And with that, sorry for interrupting that, like I always think of cancer as the curse of evolution, because we basically have it it's basically the same process well this is not actually true for all cancers but basically it's the same process of evolution you get a random mutation oh if that mutation is you know viable and uh, productive in the environment it'll propagate through the environment because you know it's better adapted to that environment right and that's kind of the same with cancer you get a random mutation because of whatever carcinogen whatever right and that might be something that completely stops that cell cycle completely you know stops that cell from working right so your immune system is just very easily able to deal with that because the cell is completely defective whereas you might have these smaller mutations that don't necessarily stop the cell or they're not in like a very critical area for that cell to actually survive but they allow to, that cell to reproduce a, a lot right and effectively then what you've got is the same kind of thing that happens with uh bacteria you know you have this huge population so you can have lots of mutations occurring so when you said like oh the cancer is quite smart it can evade these things like the cancer itself is actually just stupid it's it, it doesn't have a thought process however the fact that it can evolve so quickly like all these cells can have different things you know mutated with them different changes um some of those can evade the immune system because some of them might have an adaptation now that allows them to evade the immune, uh, the immune system or the body as a whole, or go off and, uh, I don't know, metastasize, go into this other area, go into the bloodstream, do whatever, you know, because you've basically got uncontrolled, unregulated evolution on a cellular scale. Mm-hmm. And that's why I call it like the, the curse of evolution. Yes, absolutely. That's spot on. And then that brings us to kind of something that you mentioned previously is that there's kind of two extremes where some people think, oh, well, cancer is just entirely random. And if you get it, that's just bad luck and nothing can be done about it. You know, there, there's nothing that contributes to risk. So that's incorrect. You know, um, sometimes that that those statements are made with good intention in that if someone gets cancer, they're asking loads of questions. How did I get here? What did I do? What did I do wrong, et cetera? And of course, it's not helpful to say, oh, well, this is a result of your lifestyle. And to be honest, you can very rarely even say that. Or if you have a child that has cancer or something, they're going to be like, you know, well, they should have exercised a bit more. They should have done X, Y, Z a bit more. This is their lifestyle. This is whatever. You know, it's like, that's, it's not helpful. That There's no point in having that discussion. However, from an outside looking in, 
if you're left with the thought process of, oh, this is just completely random, that's not helpful as well. Yeah. And particularly from a cancer prevention perspective, it's not helpful. So when we think about, uh, when we think about the cancer in terms of its, its causation, and particularly when we're thinking about it occurring later in life, it's probably best to think of it in terms of, like you were saying, in relation to mutations, that these mutations are occurring, like mutations in your DNA, for example, are occurring throughout the lifespan. They're happening in me and you every day. They're happening all the time. There's always these mutations that are taking place. Most of them are of little to no consequence. In some cases, there might be consequences. So the more they accumulate, and that's one of the reasons cancer occurs more with age, the higher the probability that one of these mutations is now going to um, lead to carcinogenesis or the process of cancer. It's like, you know, um, buying lotto tickets. Okay, you buy them for 10 years, probability is lower than if you buy them for 50 years. Eventually, there's that chance that there's going to be that big winner, or in this case, that big insult to a really important protein involved in the cell cycle. Okay, so the accumulation of mutations throughout the lifespan, that's the aging process. There are other, go ahead. Yeah, I'm interrupting you. Like again, a classic one is skin cancer, for example, yeah. which is you got UVA, well, UVA and UVB. I can never remember which one is the the more insulting. But either way, you've got sunlight that creates a, effectively a, a thiamine dimer in your DNA. So basically, it breaks apart, you know, the the connection in your DNA, and then you get this thiamine dimer. So two diamonds just fucking connect together. Um, most of the time, you can just repair that. You've got RNA polymerase. It, it can it can repair it no big deal right but if we're talking about insults over time you know like if you are going out to i don't know the sun you're going to sunny spain right every year you might repair all of the issues that occur the first year no bother you know it's fine your, your immune system works your your body works effectively this is no problem but if you consistently are going to sunny spain for 70 years or 50 70 years and you're consistently getting burnt you're consistently exposing yourself to an excessive amount of uh, solar radiation the chances that you get a a break in a very key point in your dna go up right but also the number of insults across time like it's cumulative like it's not actually cumulative in terms of like it's not like you're breaking this part and then it's weaker and then it's what like that that it's not cumulative in that way but it is cumulative in terms of your risk profile you know it's like you have exposed yourself to far more over time and as a result your risk of getting cancer in this case skin cancer goes up rather dramatically absolutely and on that note then there are other causative fact causative factors that also contribute um, to this group across the lifespan. So some of those will include just baseline genetic mutations that you might have inherited or been born with. The classic ones that you'll hear of quite frequently would be something like the BRCA or BRCA mutation in breast cancer. That's something that you'll hear about, um, particularly if you've got a strong family history of breast cancer, you've probably heard of that. Then you've got things like FPC, so familial polyposis coli, it's one of the genes that gives you a strong risk of um, colon cancer. There are many others of these like single gene mutations, but the reality is that it's very often uh, can many different uh, genes with it that give you a polygenic risk. 
um, that might increase uh, Paddy's risk versus mine, for example. It's just that these single genes have very strong risks of very particular cancers, but there may be more minor risks that accumulate throughout the genome as well. Um, along with that, then we've got lifestyle, of course, um, obesity, alcohol, drugs, etc., smoking. Um, this does contribute quite a bit. I think sometimes people probably overestimate the role of lifestyle. And I say that because that's our corner of the world, like fitness and nutrition professionals. I've come across people. I put a, a poll actually about three months ago on this of what percentage of cancers do you think would be preventable if everyone had a, a perfect lifestyle in terms of what they eat, how they train, etc. And some people, you know, think 100%. Some people think zero. And that's the other side of the spectrum. Very hard to know exactly what the answer is. Best estimates are around maybe 30%. Um, but that's, even that is uh, intertwined with some of the other outcomes of particular lifestyle behaviors. So very hard to answer that question specifically. Did you want to yeah, jump in on that? On the lifestyle thing, again, certain things in the lifestyle are more or less of a risk. Like, yeah. like you could put smoking in lifestyle. You know, like obviously we know that's a, a high risk factor for increase or an increase a risk that increases your risk for or sorry, a behavior that increases your risk for multiple cancers, you know, um, and in via multiple vectors, right? So if that's the lifestyle thing, like we could say yeah, it's gonna be 70, 80 percent if you stop smoking. And that's the lifestyle intervention that we played. I would say, yeah, probably 70, 80, maybe 90%, you know? Uh, but if it's something else like, oh, you're just drinking a bit more water, like obviously that lifestyle intervention is probably less uh, risk reductive than something else, you know? And um, so obviously we look at lifestyle as an overall picture, but this goes back to what you're saying about, uh, you know, cancers being polygenic. It's an intervention you're doing for certain thing might actually actually increase your risk over here it might decrease your risk over here there's so many factors at play like we know what an overall healthy lifestyle looks like but that doesn't mean that that's completely risk reductive for every type of cancer or for all the specific cancers that you might be exposed to for example you know red meat intake and colon cancer right like if you like a, a quote unquote normal person eats a, an amount of red meat, I'm not even going to put numbers on it, and they're like, yeah, okay, maybe my you know colon cancer risk is increased by 5%, let's just say that, right? And they do that, but they have all these other factors that are protective against colon cancer, like they have a you know, super high fiber diet, they do whatever else, right? They're doing a huge amount of other things to reduce that risk. You could eat the exact same diet as that person, but you have a family history of colon cancer, you know? And... As a result, even though it's the same lifestyle, you're living the exact same lifestyle, your risk and that person's risk, they're not the same, you know? So there's so many factors that go into this. So I know why some people feel like, oh, lifestyle is a huge intervention and it's like so impactful. And like, again, like you said, we're in that field, we're in this kind of like lifestyle medicine, if you will, but it it is deceptive. It's not always the same. And there's no one that can tell you this is the exact diet. This is the exact lifestyle that you should have to prevent cancers or whatever for you as an individual. You know, there's just no way we have we don't have that data. We don't understand DNA that well. We don't understand all the different uh, mutations that you could possibly or sorry, mutagens, carcinogens that you could possibly be exposed to in your life. Um, so, yeah. 100 percent. 
And then we've got environmental factors more broadly. So for example, uh, toxic exposures, maybe you live next to a plant that's releasing some sort of uh, toxin or you were exposed to um, nuclear radiation in Ukraine or something like that. Um, air quality as a whole is another important one. You know, I think we sometimes miss the fact or, or we don't understand how much air quality has improved over the last 100, 200 years. Um, like, like ridiculous changes, even in like major developed cities over the last 50 to 100 years, massive changes in air quality. Um, we've also got um, physical factors. And, and I say physical, like, for example, radiation exposure that you might have had as a treatment previously for example, or radiation like Patty was talking about from the sun. Heat itself can also sometimes um, play a role in cancers. Like, for example, if you're if you have uh, burns or you have um, carried something that is like really, really hot in a given area over time, there's some cases of like miners who carry bulbs close to particular areas and those types of things. Um, it's again one of the physical factors trauma and inflammation repeated to a given area for example inflammatory bowel disease um, the, or other inflammatory conditions where you have this constant ongoing inflammation to a given area increases risk that cancer can develop there you've got immune factors that are important so for example if someone is immunosuppressed like they have hiv or aids um, they're susceptible to uh, sometimes very rare cancers and very particular cancers that are only seen in that condition or more or less only seen in that condition uh, because of the depletion uh, of specific immune cells. We've got endocrine factors. So for example, um, high levels of estrogen exposure and endometrial cancer um, is a common one. We've also got endocrine factors that are a little bit more nuanced and might be called metabolic in that we know uh, insulin resistance increases risks of uh, certain cancers as well. Um, and then we've got viral exposures, which are probably things people wouldn't typically think of, but certain viruses can increase risk of cancers as well. One that you'll heard of would be uh, HPV, the human papillomavirus, in terms of cervical cancer, but also uh, anal cancers. So people who do anal sex uh, often end up ris at risk of anal cancers as a result of contracting HPV. Um, both cancers as well. Sorry? Throat cancers, as yeah, well. throat and head and neck as well. HPV is common, head and neck. So, um, we've got Epstein Barr virus, other types of viruses as well that potentially uh, cause cancers too. So, as you can see, it's not random in that there's it just happens, but it's also not your diet. <laughs> you know, it's not just all what's in our food. It's many, many different factors that come together to contribute to risk of cancer or certain cancers. So, where does exercise fit in all of this? Yes. So this is the important part. Okay. We're not oncologists, but uh, we are exercise professionals. So we hope that we can give you some advice as to where exercise comes in. Now, firstly, exercise reduces risk of cancer, um, more or less across the board in that a lot of different cancers are reduced uh, in terms of their risk in people who are physically active um, or do a lot of exercise. In those who have cancer, generally see better outcomes, better survival rates, lower risk of recurrence, and better quality of life. So all these things are very positive. And the field of exercise oncology, in terms of the use of exercise when someone has cancer, um, has been rapidly developing. It's an area of great interest and for many good reasons. So we'll come back to those in a minute. But what I want to touch on just for a moment is are some of the notes on prevention. Because, you know, it's all very well and good to say, 
exercise reduces the risk of cancer, but by how much, what types of cancer, etc. So just a couple of those that are of relevance would be um, bladder cancer. You know, recent study found that uh, risk is lower, lowered by about 15% individuals who have the highest amount of activity. Similarly, breast cancer, 12 to 21% risk reduction, colon, 19%, endometrial, 20%, esophageal, 21%, kidney, 12%, and stomach cancer, 19%. So constantly what we're seeing there throughout the research is that in those with the highest level of physical activity, we're generally seeing somewhere between 10 and 25% risk reduction um, of the onset of those cancers. Now, of course, there's always a case of what was the effect of exercise on health more broadly and what behaviors was it associated with? So for example, in the case of endometrial cancer, um, it seems like because obesity is a strong risk factor for endometrial cancer, that the effect of exercise on obesity might be a mediating factor there. So we can see that exercise on its own, very much a benefit, but it might even be better when we combine it with things like good quality nutrition, appropriate weight management, etc. Okay. So overall, does exercise have a role in the prevention of different cancers? Yes. Okay. Now, does that mean 0% risk? No, we've established that. Now, where does it actually come in then in terms of managing cancer? Like if you're someone... Or we get onto that, like you can just take all that we've said in previous podcasts, all your understanding of exercise in promoting health and effectively what you're doing in a cancer prevention perspective is there are specific cancer preventive preventative uh, effects of exercise but then also it is just generally making the body healthier right like you're putting yourself in a better position to be able to deal with potential you know mutations carcinogen exposures etc right like i don't think anyone would disagree or think that if you're going to be exposed to a carcinogen you would rather be at your unhealthiest or would you rather be at your healthiest i think everyone would go i want to be at my healthiest best able to deal with any potential you know exposures whatever right so Again, it has these more general or sorry, exercise has these more generalized health promoting effects that make you better able to defend against cancer. And then there are more specific effects. And we're probably not going to get into all the exact specific effects in this episode because we'd have to do a like cancer by cancer thing, you know? Yeah, absolutely. But uh it's just just while we're there, it is it is worth at least knowing that some of the specific effects um, do do exist on the basis of everything we mentioned at the start of the podcast. So when you look at um, the effect of exercise on different molecular and blood markers, we see positive effects in that they would either improve cancer prognosis or reduce risk of um, cancer in terms of the cell growth regulators. So examples of those would be IGF-1, for example, proteins involved in DNA damage and repair. So we touched on BRCA previously. That's one of them. Epigenetic expression. So the RAS family of oncogenes is an example there. Regulators of the cell cycle, hormones, for example, uh, estrogen, you know, and that's one of those hormones that we mentioned plays a role in terms of uh, cancer prognosis or pathogenesis, leptin and some others, the immune system itself, inflammation, and then oxidative stress and antioxidant pathways. All of those different levels 
are involved in specific effects um, on uh, cancer pathogenesis. And exercise modulates all of those in a positive manner that would make cancer less likely. So there are quite specific effects. It's not just do more exercise, feel better. You know, it's not that. There are very specific molecular effects as well. The indirect effects then are obviously important too. For example, people are getting outdoors and they're getting sunlight on their skin. Um, obviously within reason, uh, they're getting higher levels of vitamin D and regulating their circadian rhythm, which can play an important role there. Um, weight loss is obviously one of the outcomes that's potentially the result of exercise, reducing things like uh, estrogen exposure that might play a role in estrogen sensitive cancers, um, improving your mood, etc. So there's general and specific effects. Some of the other general effects that would be important for someone if they have cancer would be things like just generally improvements in their mood, improvements in anxiety and depression. Um, the field of psycho-oncology is a really important field because as you can imagine, the diagnosis of cancer, the undertaking of chemotherapy, radiation, surgery can really change someone's life. It can really put them into a very difficult psychological position. And exercise we know in both healthy and disease populations plays a really important role in improving anxiety and depression. So that's one. We've got improvement in our function, of course, which is important. The ability to move around, engage with the world, etc. Very important in cancer specifically because of the uh, tendency towards cancer-related cachexia, which is, uh, well, one of the outcomes is a loss of muscle, loss of strength, and loss of function. And you can imagine that if cancer is also an age-related disease, and we see it more in aging populations, that this will be an even bigger concern because they're already on that pathway of losing their function. So exercise is going to prevent their muscle loss. It's going to increase their strength. Um, it's going to reduce chances of weight gain and obesity, help improve their sleep. You can imagine that the cacophony of drugs that someone might be exposed to when they're undergoing cancer treatment and the uh, psychological state, et cetera, might make it very difficult to sleep. So something like exercise can play an important role there. Uh, reduces the risk of uh, thromboembolism or clots. So cancer, one of the things about cancer is it's also a hypercoagulable state, meaning that you get a higher risk of blood clots. So things like uh, clots in your legs or pulmonary uh, clots in the lungs, so that's another thing that exercise plays an important role in. Easing pain as well is a huge one because uh, pain can be a very strong feature in cancer. It varies by type of cancer and also by treatment, but we know that exercise plays an important role in pain management. And of course, reducing cancer-related fatigue and improving energy levels. Cancer-related fatigue affects a lot of people, and then it can vary depending on whether or not someone's undergoing radiation or chemotherapy or other biological therapies, but we know that exercise generally improves cancer-related fatigue. Prevention and improvement of lymphedema is another important one. So for example, if someone is has undergone breast surgery and they've had uh, lymph nodes uh, removed, then we can end up with something called lymphedema where there's a backflow in the lymphatic system. And this ends, ends up with this big swelling that can take place and exercise can improve with the management of that swelling. And then of course, as we said, improving the survival rates uh, of certain cancers and reducing risk of recurrence is another huge one that's really important. And we see this again throughout many types of cancers, that those who begin exercising or had previously exercised have less likelihood that the cancer will recur in future. Yeah. So 
sounds like a an all round good time. Um, yeah, sounds good. Maybe not a good time if you have cancer, to be honest. Oh, um, no, but no. it seems like exercise does quite a lot. It attacks or it targets, I should say, uh, a lot of things that potentially we would want to target if you are trying to manage cancer are you or if you are undergoing treatment for cancer etc you know um so why don't people exercise when they have cancer or how do we begin exercising when we have cancer because i would think and i I'm, this is maybe just my exposure <clears throat> to this whole field most people would think Oh, you have cancer now. You need to just sit at home and rest up, and that's that's how you you know don't waste your energy on exercise because you need to use all your energy for fighting the cancer or whatever. You know, um, <clears throat> is that the thought process you should have, or is it go out and exercise? And with that in mind, what what specifically should you be doing exercise wise? You know, is it resistance training is the biggest bang for your book? Is it, you know, doing cardio is your biggest bang for your book? Like, how do we start? What, all of that kind of stuff. Yeah. So firstly, as you can imagine, there are huge barriers to beginning exercise when you've had a diagnosis of cancer. And of course, this varies by severity and so on. But put, try to put yourself in this, in this situation, right? You've got Maybe you're in university studying or you're working a job or maybe you're just retired and you've already got a couple of other health conditions that are going on. You've got stressors in your life and now you've been given or you, you've gone to your doctor to suspect that there's cancer. OK, and now you have to go for for CT scans, you have to go for biopsies, you have to go back to the clinic every two weeks, you're awaiting chemotherapy and then you have to show up every week for that and radiation and surgery. There's so many things that go on at once. And particularly if it's a severe cancer, it's done very quickly. Things need to be underway very quickly. And not only do you end up dealing with the symptoms of the cancer itself, which might be, you know, knocking you off your feet, you might be wrecked, you might be in pain, you might be sick, etc. But now also you have to deal with all the consequences and side effects of treatment. So, you know, notoriously chemotherapy depends on the, the agent, of course, can really leave people very fatigued, can leave people with different consequences. They might be nauseous. They might have other side effects. Um, same with, you know, radiation exposure, same with obviously the post-surgical period. All these different things that take place might make exercise very difficult for someone to even think about whatever about going out and going to the gym and actually doing it. Okay, so that's the first thing is that you have to appreciate it's not just like telling anyone to go and exercise and in some cases, it might be because someone might have cancer, but they might have no symptoms. And they're like, yeah, you know, I'm having I'm having treatment. It's stressing me out, but I get a bit tired. But otherwise, I'm 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 OK. You know, of course, there's huge variation in cancer. And that's why it's important to just keep a bit of an open mind here. It's also why we can't have just generic open ended guidelines like, oh, yeah, just do this for everyone. OK, that's that's exactly what everyone should do, because that's obviously not going to be appropriate. OK, um, so that's the first thing. Now, what should people do? They should do the same as everyone else. And unfortunately, that or, or fortunately, I, I suppose it is, that's the case. That there's no like unique, really fancy, 
uh, equipment or type of exercise regime you need to follow if you have cancer, the same recommendations by um, cancer governing bodies are put out in terms of what everyone else receives, that we want to have at least 150 minutes of aerobic exercise per week and two uh, full body strengthening sessions. So the basic message there is, if you can do a couple of hours of aerobic exercise per week and you're training all major muscle groups, you're in the gym, lifting weights, et cetera, twice per week or more, you're doing a good job. So the recommendations remain the same and they remain the same with the understanding that the 80 year old with stage three, um, you know, lung cancer who has lots of, uh, lung symptoms, severe shortness of breath. And, you know, the, 25 year old with early stage testicular cancer which seems to be really well managed like they're to they're two totally different populations that you'd be trying to to give advice to so that's why the guidelines remain um general now that doesn't mean we can't give more specific advice because of course you can and the first step is to as is the case with any chronic disease really is to start slow in terms of the um exercise that you're engaging in so if you're someone that has cancer and you've already got fatigue, then what you want to do is just dip your toes in with a small bit of exercise to start with and see how that impacts your energy levels throughout the day. See how it impacts your fatigue. Because what you don't want is that, let's say you're still trying to work during your treatment um, or you're still trying to mind your kids, for example. And now you go and do an hour of training, but you can't do anything else throughout the day because you're far too fatigued. Okay, that's clearly not a great outcome. So what we'd want is that we'd start slow, we'd dip our toes in, and then we'd review after a couple of weeks, and then we'd gradually begin to ramp it up. Now, that doesn't mean you need to mind yourself too much and that you need to really take it easy because you happen to have cancer. Um, you still want to try to progress in the gym. You want to try to work hard. You want to try to gain muscle and strength to the best of your ability. Because what we realize is that in many cancers and the general pathogenesis of cancer, we know that this process of muscle loss, the breakdown of muscle protein, um, the loss of function, et cetera, is ongoing. And it is likely, um, particularly if you have a more severe cancer, or if you're on uh, different uh, chemotherapeutic agents, et cetera, that muscle loss might be part of that process. So we want to be trying to fight that to the best of our ability so that we have the best outcomes. So the general recommendations, they remain the same, but we want to dip our toes in, and then we want to feel free to take a step back every now and then if we need to. So for example, let's say you've just finished um, eight weeks of uh, chemotherapy and radiation for your respective cancer. As it came to the last two weeks, you were totally wrecked. You had nausea, you had headaches, you had loads of different symptoms that were holding you back. Totally fine in those weeks to cut your exercise volume down. Maybe you go from four days to just two days and from 60 minutes a session to 30 minutes a session. Give yourself a bit of a break and then try to build back up again after that period of chemo and radiation. So that, again, is just one of the most important points with any chronic disease, but especially with cancer, where there are these periods where treatment might be ongoing. There might be flares in certain symptoms, but not in others. We have to be flexible in our approach. 100%. And like that's what we talk about all the time with yeah. this kind of approach of like auto-regulation where it's like, okay, yeah, we do want to be flexible in terms of our actual like program design, for example. But also we would talk in a, you know, a quote unquote normal population, but like, oh, like if your machine is taken or this is taken, like, don't worry about it too much. You can do something else. It's the exact same with cancer in terms of, you know, some, some weeks you're going to have 
a fantastic ability, time management, fatigue management, everything. You're like, cool, I can just get my stuff done. Other weeks, you're going to be like, no, this is just, I'll be lucky if I can get one training session, you know, a half-ass training session at that because I'm just so tired. Like, that's fine. Something is probably better than nothing. Um, and you shouldn't really beat yourself up too much for not getting this perfect string of, oh, I was supposed to get five training sessions this week, you know? Having said that, though, should people be training like athletes, Gary? Is it better or worse to leave a little bit in the tank? Like, obviously, you're saying there, like, you need to be excuse me, more mindful of your kind of fatigue levels day to day because you don't want to just, like, destroy yourself in the gym and then you're not able to you know, do the life stuff that you actually want to be doing, you know? Um, but in general, is it better to do more? Like, is that going to lead to better outcomes or is it better to, you know, take it down a notch? Just, you're still training away, but you're not, you know, you're not training to, you know, absolutely get after it. Yeah. Like, I mean, I suppose what I, what I have to think of when you ask that question is like, what, what, what would I do if it was me now? Because I suppose if it's the 70 year old, 80 year old, they're not in the gym getting after it, okay? They're they're probably not anyway. But if it's one of us in our 20s or 30s or 40s and we're, you know, already in the gym getting after it and then we get this diagnosis and now we've got more fatigue, et cetera, I would say it makes sense as a general recommendation to just take more care and leaving a bit more in the tank. I would probably be of that mind. I'd be trying to progress. I'd be, of course, you know, trying to add weight to the bar where possible, but I wouldn't be going into the gym trying to force it. I if the if I had to take the weight down in a given session, I'd accept that. I wouldn't be going in trying to hit my previous five rep max if I knew that fit fatigue was a significant barrier. So that's often the case in our training recommendations. And it certainly will be the case here because I think fatigue management is going to be even more important here. And I don't think you'd want to run yourself into the ground when there's it's not like this is the time for training for an athletic event or trying to peak in any way. 100%. And then are there any, like, I know we did cover a few of them, um, but are there any like general considerations to take into account where you would say, okay, for this population or for this person, maybe we don't exercise. Maybe we shouldn't exercise. Yeah. There certainly are some cases where exercise would be uh, contraindicated or relatively contraindicated. And this would be, something you'd have to speak with your oncologist or surgeon about uh, to get specific advice. But if you've got um, cancer uh, that's primary in the bone or you've got metastases, so secondary sites of cancer within the bones, that can weaken them. It can lead to fractures. It can lead to severe bone pain. And uh, cancer-related bone pain is notoriously painful. So all those things might make, make exercise either contraindicated because of risk of fracture or at, least, at the very least, very, very difficult because of the associated pain. Um, immunosuppression is another significant uh, factor here. Um, so if your immune system is severely compromised, then obviously going into a, a public gym um, or maybe you train like jujitsu or something, or you train as part of a team, like that wouldn't be wise in this case, um, probably better to reduce your exposures to potential pathogens. Um, if you've got peripheral neuropathy as well, that's another one. So in some cases, cancers themselves or the side effects of uh, treatment might lead to neuropathy. So damage to particular nerves, they give you very bad nerve pain, for example, 
And that might require that someone modifies the types of exercise that they're performing or that certain types of exercise just won't be possible at the moment. And then around the surgical period, that again, of course, is very important. Totally depends on the type of surgery, the site of the surgery, how long wound healing is going to take, how it's healing um, and so on. And generally, again, your surgeon would give you advice about that. Cool. Um, I don't think there's anything else that I want to interject or add to this conversation. Um, I think that covered everything we want to cover. Again, I know this podcast episode hasn't been like, oh, here's exactly the molecular mechanisms by which exercise is going to improve cancer. I actually don't think that's helpful. Like, yeah, that's helpful if you're a doctor or, you know, an exercise oncologist. Um, but for the average person that's listening to this, realistically, we just wanted to answer the question of, should you be exercising? What role does exercise have in cancer? You know, um, and I think we answered that. Gary, would you agree? Absolutely. I would summarize by saying that exercise has both general and specific, you know, the fancy molecular effects on the prevention and the management and the prevention of recurrence or secondary prevention of cancer. And it also is going to improve quality of life at the very least for someone with cancer, even in the case that that cancer may be incurable, for example, uh, it's still going to improve quality of life. And I think everything that we know about cancer in terms of the uh, side effects of fatigue, of muscle loss, <laughs> of loss of function, of mood disturbances, all of those would lend exercise to being both a, a viable and highly recommended uh, intervention for someone to partake in. Fantastic. I mean, I have nothing else to say. So uh, I hope everyone enjoyed this. And uh, Gary, where can people find us? So as always, guys, if you'd like uh, more from Triage, you can, one, get involved in our coaching. If you'd like to actually work with us one-to-one -one, uh, towards your goals, whatever they happen to be, uh, all of us at Triage have coaching spaces available. We have a solid team of multidisciplinary professionals. So if you'd like nutrition-only coaching or you'd like full coaching with your training and nutrition covered or a rehab focus or a performance focus, we've got you covered. Just drop your information below at the link in the description. You can also get far more of our free content uh, by following us on social media, following our newsletter, you know, continuing to listen to the podcast, share the podcast, etc. Or if you'd like to take your education to the next level as it relates to nutrition, we do have a nutrition certification that you can join. Um, you just missed out. Well, actually, if you're listening to this on Monday morning, the uh, 1,000 euro price instead of 2,000 euro will still be up for the remainder of today. So if you'd like to partake in our Black Friday or Perry Black Friday sale on the nutrition course, you still can today. Uh, that is the 28th of November. If you're listening after that point, this will not be applicable, but you can still join. So nutrition certification, if you're an existing trainer, someone that already gives nutrition advice, um, or you're someone who just wants to bring nutrition coaching into your practice, then this is something that we recommend you get involved in to level up your education. Other than that, I think that's everything. 100%. See you next week.